This evening we're going to be looking at the Epistle to the Romans, the opening salutation, and our passage is Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through to 7. I'm sure some of you, those who were here then, you'll remember about 10 years, we at this church did a Bible study series on the Apostle Paul's Epistle to the Romans, and I thought it was high time to return to that epistle. It would seem that at the time of writing this letter, Paul was a guest in the home of Gaius. We get that from Romans chapter 16, verse 23. And he was a guest in the city of Corinth. We get that from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. Paul dictated this letter to Tertius and it would seem that it was then taken by Phoebe across the Adriatic Sea to Rome and we get that in Romans chapter 16 and verse 1. This epistle has been described as the only part of scripture that contains a detailed and systematic, in other words ordered, account of the doctrines of Christianity. In other words, it's compulsory reading for all Christians. As such, you can be sure that God would never have allowed the ship that Phoebe was on to sink with the epistle being lost at the bottom of the deep blue sea. Romans is the longest of Paul's epistles and it has the longest opening salutation. So, without further ado, please Turn again to Romans chapter 1 and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We know from other portions of the Scriptures that before his Damascus Road conversion, Paul, or Saul as his name was, was a Pharisee and a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As such, he would have had a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament and the various men of God in the Old Testament, such as Abraham, Moses, King David, and so on. Men who were all described as servants of God, Jehovah God. No doubt, before his conversion, Paul would have described himself as a servant of God. After all, he was a Pharisee. But the reality was that as someone who went around persecuting the church of God and wasting or destroying it, he was in fact an enemy of God. He most certainly was not a servant of God before his conversion. However, by the grace of God, just as those Old Testament saints were servants of Jehovah, Paul was a servant of Jesus Christ which, when you think about it, is precisely the same thing. To be a servant of God is to be a servant of Jesus Christ, who is God manifest in the flesh. Just as Abraham in the Old Testament 
And Paul in the New Testament were bond servants of God. So too are you if you belong to Jesus Christ, having received him as your saviour from sin and as your Lord. You are bound to him. And that is the definition of true freedom, being bound to Jesus. It sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? But if you're a Christian, you'll know exactly what I mean. Being bound to Jesus is freedom. We see also that Paul was called to be an apostle in verse 1, where apostle means one sent forth. Being called means that Paul didn't choose to become an apostle. God chose him and he separated him for that ministry. Paul was called to be an apostle, called by God. Christians are citizens of heaven and they are of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone and holding everything together. Indeed, the Son of God is the greatest of all the apostles. Jesus is an apostle, having been sent by his Father, not to condemn the world, but that the world, through him, might be saved. He that believeth in him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. If you can understand that the church is built upon the apostles and their doctrine, and most of all, the church is built upon the Lord Jesus Christ who sent them, then hopefully you will appreciate how ridiculous and how pretentious and how deluded certain people are in our day and age who claim to be apostles. We have one living on our island who calls himself an apostle. The doctrine that we study is not built upon him. We study the doctrine of the apostles who were called to be apostles by the Lord Jesus Christ. As an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul was separated unto the gospel of God or the good news of God that he has sent his only begotten son into the world to reconcile sinners to God by his life of perfect obedience, his sacrificial death and his triumphal resurrection from the dead. As can be seen in verse 2, this good news was not new news. Let's have a look at verse 1 again. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, the good news of God. It was promised in Old Testament prophecy, such as in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, where it is written, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh means to him whom it all belongs. In other words, the promised Christ. 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until the promised Christ comes, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Let's have a look at verses 3 and 4. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. In those two verses, the Apostle Paul presents us with the subject of the gospel of God. The subject is a person and that person is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 speaks of the humanity of the Lord Jesus in that he was made or born of the seed, the seed of King David, according to the flesh. That is a declaration that Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled. For example, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, I read it earlier. It is written concerning Jesus of the increase of his government And peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even from ever, forever. In fulfilment of that word of prophecy and others indeed, other prophecies, the angel Gabriel said to the Virgin Mary, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And there we see in verse 3 of Romans chapter 1 concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made or born of the seed of David according to the flesh. That clear reference to the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, when you study the words and the ministry of Jesus, it becomes apparent that the man who was born of the seed of David is not like any other man. For example, Jesus never said, Forgive me, Father, But he did say, Father, forgive them. Also, Jesus said, I do always those things that please the Father. Hands up if there is anyone in here who can say that with a clear conscience. I do always those things that please the Father. Jesus said to the Jews, which of you convinceth me of sin. Not one of the Jews responded to that challenge. No one else can say those words and that is because we have all sinned. None of us can say which of you convinceth me of sin. But Jesus did say those words. They apply to him uniquely. Therefore, unlike everyone else, Jesus was a man without sin but also As can be seen in verse 4, Jesus is God. Let's have a look at verse 4 alongside 
verse 3. In verse 3, which refers to the humanity of Jesus, we see that he was made or he was born of the seed of David. Then when you look at verse 4, obviously it's not going to say that Jesus was made or born God. And it doesn't. We read that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. So Jesus, made of the seed of David, but declared to be the Son of God. As the Son of God, creation is attributed to Jesus in various Bible verses. He is the creator who upholds all things by the word of his power. In other words, Jesus sustains everything by the mere utterance of his divine power. You see that in Hebrews chapter 1 and various other places that speak very clearly of Jesus, the creator God. However, the eternal son of God stepped down from heaven. He made himself of no reputation. Though he was rich, for your sake, dear Christian, he became poor in order that through his poverty, you might become rich, spiritually rich. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, where he bare your sins in his own body, that you, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. That lowly state of condescension and humiliation would not last forever. And what is, uh, and that is what verse 4 is telling us. Upon his resurrection from the dead, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God. Dear Christian, right at the beginning of this epistle in verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul has declared very clearly both the humanity and the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's got to be worth memorising verses like this for your edification and also for your witness to others. Two very clear verses that speak of the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. Let's have a look at verses 5 and 6. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. It seems logical that grace comes before apostleship After all, grace means undeserved favour. And if it was not for God's undeserved favour towards Paul, who in another one of his epistles described himself as the chief of sinners, Paul would not have been a Christian at all if it was not for God's grace towards him. He would not have been a Christian, let alone an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, if it were not for God's grace. Having stated that he received grace and apostleship from the man who is God, 
Paul then gave the reason for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. What does obedience to the faith mean? Any ideas what obedience to the faith means? What it does not mean is that forgiveness of sins and everlasting life come through obedience to God's law. That would be a religion of works. So obedience of faith is not about gaining salvation through obedience. Neither does it mean that a faith that faith leads to obedience. Because you have faith, you will become obedient. God willing, if you are a Christian, you will endeavour to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't just be a hearer of the word, you will be a doer of the word. And it will be your desire to do God's will. God is your Father. Why would you not want to do that which is pleasing to God? But this isn't what it's all about. Obedience to the faith, what does it mean? Paul said something very similar at the end of his epistle in chapter 16, verse 26, where he spoke about obedience of faith. It is of huge importance because that is why he was he was called to be an apostle for obedience to the faith among all nations. It means hearing the gospel and truly believing it. That is obedience to the faith. Hearing the gospel and truly believing. The obedience is the whole act of repentance towards God, receiving Jesus as your saviour from sin, believing on his name and following him. That is obedience to the faith. Verse 5 ends with the words, for his name. Paul's work as an apostle was primarily to glorify his sender, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God. The great sin of unbelief is a refusal to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. As such, If you have not yet obeyed the gospel, if you have not yet uh, been obedient to the faith, then believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and seek to live each day for the glory of the great God and Saviour Jesus Christ as you hear his voice and as you follow him. Finally, in the Apostle Paul's opening salutation, he said in verse 7, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was describing those whom the letter is addressed to. And it is, a, it is a description that doesn't just fit those um, first century Roman Christians. It fits all Christians throughout the ages. What you read there in verse 7. Beloved of God, that's you if you're a Christian. Called to be saints, that's you if you're a Christian. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Note first that all means that not just a few select Christians are called to be saints. Have a look at it, it's very clear there. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Who are the ones in that lot that are called to be saints? All. Not some, but all. This is one of the many errors of Roman Catholicism that only those who have jumped through various hoops and have performed what the Pope declares to be miracles are promoted by the Pope of Rome to sainthood. The reality is that saint simply means holy. That's what it means, holy. And that is a description of all who have trusted in Jesus and are children of God. They are holy. They are holy and without blame in Christ. It doesn't matter who they are, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, rich or poor, male or female, educated or not educated, slave or free, and so on. If you are a Christian, you are holy, you are blame, uh, without blame, you are a saint of the Most High God. It's as simple as that. When you look at that description of Christians, beloved, called, and saints, or holy, deal with it, let's deal with it back to front. Have a look at it again in verse 7. To all all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at beloved, called and saints back to front and see where we get with that. You'll see that you are a saint Because God has called you. That's why you're holy, because God has called you. And he has called you by his grace, through faith in his dear son. And that ultimately is because God has loved you with an everlasting love. Look at it again there. You are a... uh, It is because God loved you that he called you to be saints. The infinitely great love of God for you was demonstrated about 2,000 years ago when Jesus was lifted up to die on a cross. The man who is God was lifted up to die on a cross. When I listen to people from the various cults who kind of speak the same language as me, but there's something very big missing from it. They're Jesus is not the incarnate Son of God. So no matter how much they may talk about the cross, it's a very different thing for them. They cannot see the love of God and his mercy and his grace and his justice, his holiness, in the way that a born-again Christian can. Because upon that lifted up to die upon the cross is the man who is God. And 
That love was demonstrated about 2,000 years ago. Having loved you, dear Christian, he called you. That you might be set apart, that you might be consecrated for his service as his saints, his holy ones, as you follow your Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who is harmly, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. May each one of us here be people who know Jesus, the man who is God, that we may know him as the one who loved us and who gave himself for us on Calvary's cross as he bare away our sins. Amen.